Hello everyone, welcome to A Millennial Learns. I am your host, Abby Rancor. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening this week. Uh, today is our Bible episode and we are going over Ezra 4 to Esther 8. This is actually a really good section of the Bible. Um, I was really hyped to get out of the Chronicles book, which I don't want to rip on Chronicles. It's a great book on its own. But after, um, you know, so it's a recap. I've mentioned that it's a recap of the other books of the Bible. So I felt like I had just read that and then I was reading it again. Um, I still learned a good amount from it. It was good to go over it a second time, but I am glad to be into Ezra. And this section is really, really good, really informative and very historically interesting. So we went over the first three chapters of Ezra last week, but let me just do a quick recap. Essentially, the king of um, Persia named Cyrus is letting the Jews go and rebuild to fulfill the word of God. He brings out articles from the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem. Um, Second Ezra lists the exiles who return and the numbers of people who returned. And then Ezra 3 was where Israelites had started to rebuild the temple and laid the foundation and all of that. And at the end of Ezra 3, it mentioned that the older priests and Levites were weeping when they heard the new temple was being built. Um, But then other people were jumping for joy. So that was a little bit confusing. Um, I think it was just because they like remembered the old way or how they were exiled and stuff like that. But there was kind of a mixed reaction to them building back the temple. So then we jump into Ezra 4, which is our reading for this week. And Ezra 4 says, enemies, the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the temple was being built. They said, basically, like, let us help you. Um, but they were kind of trying to foil the plan. They weren't... Um, They obviously were the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, so they weren't actually trying to help them. They were just deceiving them. But um, the Israelites said, no, you can't help us. You have no part in building this temple. And so the enemies set out to discourage everyone from building the temple. Um, And then during the reign of Xerxes, there was an accusation launched against Judah and Jerusalem. And there was a letter written against Jerusalem to Antart. He was the king of Persia. Obviously, I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but um, basically there were a lot of things standing in the way of Jews building this temple. A lot of letters written against them, a lot of accusations brought up against them. And um, so this letter was written to the king and they said, you know, in the letter, these enemies said, okay, they're rebuilding. Once it's rebuilt, you know, they're trying to rebuild so that they don't have to pay taxes anymore. They won't obey your law if this is rebuilt. And so obviously the king did not want that. And the king replied and issued an order to stop the work on the temple. So work was at a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, who was the next king of Persia. So in Ezra 5, it says that Haggai and Zechariah, who are prophets, prophesied to Jews in Judah and Jerusalem. And basically said, continue on with the work. So the people continued building the house of God. And the governor, whose name was Tatanay, um, asked and came and kind of tried to give them grief and said, who authorized you to build this temple? And what are the names of the people constructing the building? So they said, like, okay, go right to Darius and see if we can build this. 
but in the meantime we're going to keep building until a written reply from him is received because they couldn't legally stop them from building the temple without a written order from the king so it takes time to get the message to the king and then back from the king because it was they were far away so the jews answered we are the servants of god we are we are the servants of the god of heaven and earth go look back in the archives and see that king cyrus did tell us to rebuild so that was the letter that was sent to king darius the Jews said, listen, we already got authorization for this. We're going to keep building. Just go back in the records and see that this was true. So in Ezra 6, King Darius did, in fact, go back through the records and the the historical accounts and found the decree from King Cyrus. And he said, okay, not only... So, so his written response then was that the governor is not only to not interfere, but their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury. Whatever is needed for them to build this temple, they get like materials, like no expenses, anything. So King Darius is really on board. So um, they finished the temple, made sacrifices, installed their priests and Levites, and then celebrated Passover. Um, okay, in Ezra 7, it says, During the reign of this same guy's name, Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra came up from Babylon. And this book, obviously, that we're in is Ezra. So this is who the book is named after. He is the main character. He was a teacher that was well-versed, it said, in the law of Moses. And the king sent Ezra up to Jerusalem with a decree. He was sent with silver and gold for the temple and sacrifices. And he was basically sent for the purpose of appointing all of the magistrates and judges. And he was going to be kind of in charge. So the king sent him up to have everything run smoothly. So Ezra brought a bunch of people back with him. This is now in Ezra 8. There were very large families of people. The chapter gives a list of all the people that came back with Ezra to Jerusalem and to the house of God. He assembled all of them at the canal that flows toward Ahava, it says, and they camped there for three days. Well, then they saw that there were no Levites in the crowd, and so they sent people to go get attendance for them at the house of God. So two men were brought back and their families for that job, and Ezra proclaimed a fast and asked, uh, and, and asked God for a safe journey back. So... Um, then they, he gave a bunch of gold and silver and picked 12 leading priests and consecrated both the gold and silver and the leading priests to the Lord as like a, not a sacrifice because that would be like killing an animal, but as a gift to the Lord, I guess. Um, and then the exiles who had returned also sacrificed burnt offerings along with those gifts. In Ezra 9, Ezra was told that the people of Israel had not kept themselves separate from foreigners because that was one of the commands that God had given that they would be separate, but they had intermarried. And he had not known this when he like, was returning to um, the house of God. And so he tore his clothes and pulled his hair and grief, all the, the typical things we see when they're describing someone grieving. So he did that. He was just distraught, basically. It, it really shows him, like, crying a ton, praying a ton. He had this very long prayer about how much Israel has sinned, how, I guess it wasn't, I, well, it was a prayer, but it was more like 
a confession that said, you know, Israel has sinned. We have not followed your commands. We are guilty. And then Ezra 10, which is the last chapter of Ezra, said, while Ezra was crying and praying, a crowd gathered and wept bitterly too. Like everyone recognized that they had sinned and all wept and grieved. And they decided to send away all the women and children who they had intermarried with. So in this time, it was not like women were intermarrying with other groups and then staying in Israel. The Basically, the woman went anywhere her husband came from. And so the only the men had intermarried with the women. And so the women and children resulting in those marriages were foreign. And so they all sent them back to their homeland. And so they would get back to um, the law. So then they had some logistical ways to figure this out. Like there was talk of logistics about, well, we can't all gather here because it's raining and we can't all send them away at the same time. So how about we have each house come and at a certain time and separate from their foreign women and then send them back. And then this is, I thought was kind of funny in Ezra 10, like the last thing, it was kind of savage because it said like, yeah, it's really a sin um, if you intermarry and it's very bad and all of this stuff. But then it lists everyone who was a descendant of a priest that married a foreign woman and just calls them out on their sin like right there. So that's how Ezra ends is that the people are trying to get back to not being in sin and um, getting back to what God had commanded. So, okay, so then I said that we were going from Ezra to Esther. Well, sandwiched in between those two books is a book called Nehemiah. And um, I did not know much about Nehemiah before this, but he seems like a very, very good leader. So Nehemiah is a Jewish leader who supervised the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah 1 opens with the words of Nehemiah, it says, and he basically introduces himself. He recounts the time that his brother and um, some other men came from Judah with news that was not good. And then he goes on and explains that this bad news was that um, the people who are returning to Jerusalem from being exiled are not faring very well. Their walls have been destroyed. The gates have been burned. Like, it is just not going well over there for them. So Nehemiah was praying and he weeps and weeps and fasts and prays. And he says that he knows that they had been faithful, unfaithful and corrupt. And he admits his own sinfulness as long as everyone else in his father's house who says, I know we've sinned, but like have mercy. So then he reminds God of his promises and that he says, no, I know you promised that if we were unfaithful, we would be scattered. And that came true. But you also promised that you would hold your people near and bring them to the place you had chosen if they were obedient. So he was begging for mercy for the Israelites. Nehemiah 2. Um, well, okay. So at the end of this, one thing I noticed with Nehemiah is that like every chapter had kind of a full story and then a little one sentence or little blurb that kind of led into the next story. So at the end of Nehemiah 1, it says, um, remember God, like I was a cupbearer for the Persian king. And then it was the end of the chapter. And then Nehemiah 2 picked up there and it said, um, 
okay, so when he was a cupbearer for the Persian king one time, the king, um, well, so it was after he had heard about the Israelites not doing well back in Jerusalem. And so he went to the king and was just doing his normal duties as a cupbearer. But then the king noticed that he was sad and said, why are you so sad? It looks like you have a broken heart. And when um, the king saw that Nehemiah was sad, Nehemiah said, well, um, here's the problem. My people are not doing well. And the king said, okay, what, what is it that you want? So he gave it to be open. Um, it was like open-ended, like, how can I help? And so Nehemiah asked to get sent to the city to rebuild the wall and rebuild the gates and help Jerusalem basically get back on its feet. So they set a time that it would take, like an amount of time. It doesn't specify how long Nehemiah actually asked for to be sent over there, but he asked for governor's letters for safe travels and gifts of timber and all the things that he would need to help build this wall. And the king granted that to him. So Nehemiah went to Jerusalem and he hadn't told anyone else he was going to rebuild. So he traveled with a few people, but he hadn't told anyone his... Um, intentions and so he went to inspect the wall at night under like the cover of night in secret he went and tried to say like okay what are we dealing with here that we need to fix and started his plans so then they started rebuilding and eventually ammonite officials heard about this and there they could not do enough to try to stop him from building this wall they mocked and ridiculed him and more of that is coming but um there was a lot of opposition to rebuilding this. In Nehemiah 3, there are multiple gates in the city and it goes over all the gates. There were so many more gates than I thought. They were all named a certain thing, like the gate of water, the gate of fish. So I don't exactly know the layout. Maybe I should go look at a map and maybe I can post that, but like there's just a lot of gates and it goes over, this whole chapter goes over which gate was repaired by which group of people. So it's a very good historical record as well, not just like from the story, but also it lists like the exact number of people coming back to exile, who worked on the wall, what these descendants were. So all of this is like very, his, like for the historical record. Nehemiah 4, there was a man named Sanballat who heard that they were rebuilding the wall and he, and, um, he insulted them. He threw insults their way and tried to hurt them as however he could. And so Nehemiah prayed that their insults would be turned back on their own heads and hurt them instead. And this is kind of, this reminded me of that verse, it's probably in Psalms or Proverbs, that's like, you know, basically don't take vengeance into your own hands, vengeance is the Lord's. Like, Nehemiah didn't take any action against this. He didn't go and attack them because of their insults or anything like that. He just prayed like, you know, eventually they're going to get what's coming to them because like he prayed that the insults would be turned back on their own heads and put it in the Lord's hands. So then the Israelites rebuilt um, until the entire wall had reached about half the original height. And Samuel was very angry because they kept saying like, oh, I don't think they're going to finish. Like they can't build this wall. Who's even getting over this wall? You know, so they were really trying to tear the Israelites down. And so the fact that they had succeeded this first like milestone, Sanballat was very angry and that it was getting rebuilt and that they were succeeding. But Nehemiah had his people defend the city. They were stationed um, 
and it sounded like they always had a weapon on them so they were stationed at certain parts of the wall and nehemiah gave him a little pep talk and said don't be afraid remember the lord and fight for your families so there were a lot of plots against them and god frustrated all of those plots so half of the men did the work and half of the men were always defending the wall because of all these plots so one mary and then one man carried a trumpet and whenever the trumpet was sounded everyone was to gather there and that's where they would basically gather together to go fight if they needed to but work was non-stop 24 7 it said people would carry a weapon in one hand and work with the other so they were very very prepared if someone was going to come attack them in nehemiah 5 the jews raised an outcry and they said listen there's some unfair practices in here like we have fields that well really it all boils down to because some of the details were lost on me but really it boils down to um some jewish people were charging a lot of interest and kind of acting unfairly towards other jewish people and so nehemiah put a stop to that he heard about this and called a meeting and said you know we have brought back our own jews now you're selling your people and then we're selling them back to us like this is not right stop charging interest on your own people and give them back their fields and all this stuff he made a lot of reforms within you know the city of jerusalem and the people that were living there and really made everyone on the same team as opposed to gouging people with interest so everyone promised to to make the reforms that he said and it said that nehemiah was a very good governor he didn't put a heavy burden on the people he had a, a light burden a light tax and he was very generous there was a food allotment for the governor that was like a huge bounty of food but he shared it always with like 150 workers and really rewarded them for the the work that they did and was just very generous nehemiah 6 said that word got to the enemies that the wall was rebuilt and um had not but they hadn't set the doors in the gates yet so um enemies still were scheming to harm nehemiah and they said hey come down and let's meet at this central location and i think they were wanting an alliance or something um and they repeatedly asked him to come down to this location he said no i won't go and the enemies said that they thought that jerusalem was going to revolt against the king of judah that's why they were building up the wall and all of that and it was funny nehemiah said you're just making that up in your own head like it sounded funny reading it it sounded like something some it sounded like something someone really young would say like you're just making that up in your own head but um you know that is what nehemiah said he's like we're not doing that you're way off base and you're just making that up and then another man came to nehemiah and said hey listen you're being like hunted down they want to kill you they're gonna go try to kill you let's run into the temple for safety now running into the inner temple was a sin because it especially to hide um from people because it you wouldn't be entering like out of reverence and so it was a sin to go in there nehemiah knew that and so he said no i'm not going to go run away and hide in the temple and this man was prophesying incorrect things just to get him to sin so that he could ruin nehemiah's good name 
So after all these things, after all these bad plots were thwarted by Nehemiah and the people, um, they, the surrounding nations lost all of their confidence and it said that they realized that God was helping the Jews. Um, okay, so we are in Nehemiah 7 now, and they now have the doors in place on the gates. So gatekeepers and musicians and officials were appointed. So all the official stuff kind of gets underway. It lists all the exiles who returned and the number of exiles. Again, very like historical records based. Um, everyone settled in their towns and Ezra read the law to the um, people. And then Nehemiah 8, um, all the people gathered before the water gate. Okay, so this is like the big, where they commemorated and dedicated the wall. So there was a big ceremony where all the people gathered before the water gate. And Ezra read the book of the law. So Ezra, who we read about last book, um, is here and read the book of the law from daybreak until noon. And um, people started weeping because they thought that they were I mean I'm assuming it doesn't say why they were weeping but I'm assuming it was because they recognized their guilt like part of the law's purpose is to hold up a mirror to yourself and see where you're sinning and so I'm assuming that because of all of the Israelites sins and stuff they would have read the book of the law and been very convicted about their own sin but this is like a day of commemorating and repentance and stuff like that. So uh, Nehemiah said, don't weep, go enjoy cho choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. They started celebrating festivals again and started the festival where they set up the temporary shelter. They went and lived in the temporary shelter for the seven days and the book of the law was read during that whole festival as was written in the book of the law. Okay, in Nehemiah 9, all Israelites got together and confessed all their sins. There was a very long praise about how he's good, how he has made promises to the people, how the people were rebellious, but how they are no longer going to be. And so they all made an agreement that they are going to follow God. Nehemiah 10 lists all the people who sealed the agreement. So it's a lot of priests and Levites and officials. So they were like the nobility, basically, and they were the ones that sealed it. But then everyone else ended up joining in um, after they had sealed it and joined in on the oath, saying that they would, you know, bring their firstborns, their tithe, all of that, following all the rules that they had set forth. So in Nehemiah 11, they cast lots for people to come to Jerusalem while the rest stayed in their towns. Um, it lists all the new residents by the tribe they came from. So it says like by the tribe of Benjamin and then it lists all these people. Um, so very detailed. And then the rest were in the towns of Judah. Um, and it goes into more detail about how all the people, about um, all the people and where they lived. So then we're in to Nehemiah 12. It lists all the priests and Levites who have like roles. So again, very historical record-ish. The Levites were brought from where they lived to dedicate the wall of Jerusalem. They assigned two large choirs. Oh, I guess this is the dedication of the wall. The other one was just, um, the other big event was just gathering and confessing their sins and following, like agreeing to follow God. But actually I misspoke in Nehemiah 12 is where they dedicate the wall. 
So um, there were assigned two large choirs to give thanks. It seemed like a bitty, a pretty big production, actually. So there were two choirs, and they marched in opposite directions, like around the wall, and it seemed like some things were choreographed and all of that. They offered very big sacrifices that day, and it said rejoicing could be heard from very far away. Men were also appointed in Nehemiah 12 to be in charge of things like storerooms for tithes and like all of the logistical things had people who were appointed to be in that role. Nehemiah 13, the book of the law was read to the people uh, um, all that day during the commemoration and it said that no Ammonite or Moabite should be admitted into the assembly of God. When they read that, they like realized you know, it said again that, that Ammonites or Moabites should not be admitted into the assembly of God. Um, okay, so before this period, it says that it goes into this story. This whole chapter is encapsulated by the title of like, it says Nehemiah's other reforms or something along those lines. So this is just a, a um, kind of smattering of other reforms that he made. So for example, someone had made a, um, someone had given this man named Tobiah a, a room within the like court of the house of God, which was a sin because it was supposed to be used for a storeroom for like tithes and grain and stuff like that for God, but they just gave it as a room to a guy. So Nehemiah learned of that and threw all of Tobiah's household goods and purified the room. He also learned at one point that the portions that were assigned to the Levites, because remember, the Levites aren't supposed to have to work in the field. They're the priests and the officials. And so they're not supposed to have to like go farm or work. They are supposed to be given their portion by the rest of the people's like tithe and things. And so he learned that the Levites had not been getting their share and they had had to go back to their own fields. So Nehemiah rebuked those officials that did that. He put very trustworthy people in charge. Um, and then a big one was that he saw a lot of people not observing the Sabbath. For example, there would be like loads of trade goods come in on a Sabbath. So he closed the gates on the Sabbath so none could come in on, on well, I say Sunday because that's our Sabbath, what's considered our Sabbath now. But in this time, it was sundown Saturday to sundown, wait, no, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday was the Sabbath. So he, you know, the tradespeople would would camp outside the gate a couple times and he said, you can't camp outside our gate, I'm going to arrest you. So eventually people just learn not to come on the Sabbath. So he's kind of training the culture around him to, um, to respect their Sabbath as well as the people of Israel. Um, he saw people hauling in goods to town and selling food and preparing food and stuff like that. So he said to not sell food on the Sabbath. Um, and then he found out some men had married foreign wives, I think again, or maybe this was like a separate incident from the first time and he rebuked them. And so he did all these good things for the Lord and pointed everyone to the Lord. And so he said, remember me with favor, my Lord, is like a theme of this book is he's praying the whole time and kind of recounting these events in this book. And a lot of times he says, remember me with favor. So that is the end of Nehemiah. And the last chapters we're going to go over today are Esther. Although 
I already went over Esther in an episode like in depth and so I would just highly recommend you just go back and listen to the Esther one because it's a very very good book. I'm just going to do a quick summary here um, because you can go back and listen to the Esther one so I would highly highly recommend that. Um, because this is where I figured out that Purim originated in the book of Esther. So at one point I just wanted to do a deep dive on Esther because I wanted to look up, you know, women heroes of the Bible. And I had no idea that an entire festival originated from her story. So, um, in, let me just give a quick summary. So in this book, um, it explains why the Jews in the Persian period started celebrating Purim. God intervened to save the Jews. So that's where the festival came from because a lot of their festivals had roots in God performing a miraculous event or saving them. And so they decided that this new festival of Purim um, would commemorate God saving them. Um, Esther was a Jewish exile and her cousin and guardian Mordecai worked to rescue their people from a plot to destroy them from the Persians. And it's interesting because God is never mentioned. No one ever prays or something or anything, but, um, they say the timing and how everything came together, that the events pointed to God. And so that's why it's included in the Bible. And then I'll just include my favorite quote, And this is like the classic quote that comes from Esther. So maybe it's overused, but I still think it's like so profound and tells us so much about today and your purpose in life today, because it said, for if you remain silent at this time, well, I should give some context, actually. This is where Mordecai is trying to convince Esther to go talk to the king. Now, if you go to, to the king without a request that's really legitimate or, you know, pretty much anything, like he was very strict. If you go to and request some time with the king and he doesn't like it, basically, he'll kill you on the spot. So she would be risking her life. But Mordecai was trying to convince her to go ask the king to spare the Jews because there was this plot to kill them. So Mordecai says to Esther, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family's but you and your father's family will perish and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this i love that quote so much first of all there's multiple things that i love about it let's just break it down really quick so it says for the if you remain silent at this time relief and deliverance for the jews will come from another place so this just shows god's plan. Like if you are chosen for something and you continuously say no, like God gives you the freedom to say no to his plan. You can say no and his plan will succeed. He promised the Jews that they would be preserved and delivered and all of those things. So it would come from another place, but it's not in your best interest to say no to God's plan because it says, but you and your father's family will perish. And then God is going to set you up at the exact right time and right place to do what he wants you to do. He says, and who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now, Esther was not royal. She got married in, or she was, no, she got chosen for like a, um, for, yes, for like a beauty thing. Whoever the king thought was most beautiful would he would marry. And so she was chosen. She, 
I guess she was married in and now she's royal but she did not start out royal it was like pretty miraculous that she ended up as royal so it was very much obvious that God chose her to do this but she still had to step out in her own faith and be bold for God and bold for the sake of her people and actually do it because God can tell you to do it as many times as he wants but you can say no he doesn't force you the problem I have that reminds me that there's that movie um Evan Almighty we watched it just a couple you know weeks ago and you know it's a fun movie and it shows like a you know a biblical event that's portrayed it's a little watered down whatever the one thing I think is like kind of off with that movie is that God is like pestering um you know Evan Almighty so much that he basically can't say no he basically forces him to build this ark where in this real life it even says yeah you could say yes and you could say no God's not gonna force you to do anything he's gonna reveal to you what the right thing is to do but you still have to be bold enough to go do it and if you don't do it, he'll, he'll use someone else. So I just think that's a good reminder. We need to be bold in our faith. That's a huge um, theme of my Bible study last week. Just the Bible study I do with, you know, a church group. We were talking about these attributes of God and how that, you know, kind of inspires you to be bold in doing things for him and why you can trust like, these good attributes of God. And so you need to be bold in the faith. And Esther ended up being super bold. Like she was risking her entire life for this. And there were very, very high stakes. So that is my summary of Esther and my tangent on my favorite quote of Esther. And that is all I have today for our Bible episode. So um, next week is going to be... Esther 9 to Psalms 9. I'll just skip the rest of Esther because that is also in the um, other podcast episode I recommended. So we will just go whatever the next book is and then into Psalms. Now, there's a week coming up here where it's all Psalms. It's like I have to read like 68 Psalms in a row. And they're all just like a list of songs. So what I think I'm going to do for those weeks is really highlight just a couple of psalms and dissect them in greater detail so that I don't just like you know because they're either like praise songs or sad songs and so I think that's going to get really boring to go over 68 psalms and just do a literal recap of each one so I think I'm just going to cherry pick some some good ones and some good reminders and stuff like that so um next week Esther 9 through Psalms 9 if you're following along and then we will start cherry picking some psalms and uh figure out what my favorite ones are so that is all for this week's episode thank you so much for listening I hope you have a great week and I will see you for Monday's episode what I'm doing for Monday's episode is going through a Catholic mass and dissecting it and showing where it came from in the Bible. So kind of another uh, religion, faith topic, but this one's gonna be very exciting. I'm really excited to learn where everything traces back to. So that is all for today. Thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you later. Bye everyone.